0: The Linux Reality Podcast is sponsored by O'Reilly Media, spreading the knowledge of innovators through its books, online services, magazines, and conferences. Visit them today at O'Reilly.com. Hello and welcome back to Linux Reality. This is episode number 82. My name is Chess Griffin and uh, this episode we're going to continue with this nice little string of guest episodes Um, and this is going to be our first two-parter and this is going to be on Inkscape and it's uh, done by uh, Richard Guerin and he is uh, one of the many of the of the fine listeners that that Really pitched in and and helped out on coming up with the new Linux reality logo. He also does a uh, a screencast site with another uh, user, HeathenX. He's posted in the forums as well. They do a bunch of Inkscape tutorials um, that are done as screencasts. Really, really helpful sites. So I'll put a link to their site, of course, uh, in the show notes. But uh, he certainly knows his way around Inkscape and is a, is a very good graphic artist. Um, in fact, from, I think you'll hear in this uh, first bit here that that's actually not what he does for a living, which is interesting because it, I think it's, you know, it's amazing the you know, the talent that people have and it's not even their, it's not even their primary, uh, uh, job or anything. Uh, so anyway, so this this will be really good. I, I think this will be um, it's this is perfect because it's this, it's these kinds of things like Inkscape, like the audio uh, uh, topic we had last week, like the GIMP. I mean, this is fabulous because these are the, the topics that you know I don't have uh, as much knowledge in as as other people. So it's much better to have someone who is skilled and knowledgeable talk about it. So that's what we're going to talk about this week. Got a few things up front here. I wanted to mention. Uh, first of all, quick reminder on this uh, little contest for the uh, for the free book, The Linux Certification, LPI's uh, Linux Certification in a Nutshell by O'Reilly. Uh, just submit a, a listener tip. There's going to be one this in this episode, so you can hear what that's like. And uh, the f- best one between now and the end of November, we'll get a chance to win that book. Uh, also, I uh, wanted to mention, just as a side thing, a little fun thing for me, I uh, just bought a used uh, Spark machine, a uh, Sun Ultra 60, uh, which is a workstation that Sun produced between 1999 and 2001. I think this is a 2001 model. It's a dual processor, 450 megahertz each. So there's two of those. It's got two gigs of RAM. It's got two 36 gig SCSI, uh, 10,000 rpm drives in it. So it's 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 a pretty uh, pretty hefty machine. In fact, it's it's literally hefty. The thing is heavy. Um, <laughs> the same size as any other sort of pc atx style box but this thing is very heavy um and it's got solaris on there right now solaris 10 uh so i haven't yet hooked it up i've got the little adapter sun of course has got all kinds of weird things with all their hardware so you've got to have an adapter vga adapter to be able to use a regular vga cable um i've got a sun uh Uh, keyboard and mouse that came with it. So I'm really excited to play with this thing. I'm going to play with Solaris. Who knows? I may put BSD or Linux on there. It's just, you know, fun machine. And I got it for virtually nothing. I got it off Craigslist. uh, And uh, it's just, I mean, these are machines that probably cost thousands of dollars when they first came out, and now they're almost almost nothing. Uh, So fun stuff. The other thing I wanted to mention up front is uh, this is something I came across this past week. I think I've mentioned this before that currently the Linux reality website is running on a VPS. It's a Debian uh, VPS, a virtual private server. A VPS is basically, um, there's different ways to do it, different technologies, but the the, the provider I use uses uh, Zen. So they have a large machine, you know, um, in terms of uh, uh, specs um, that they create a lot of little virtual machines in. I think the provider I'm with does eight virtual machines per host, uh, something like that. Uh, and then, uh, you know, they can, you can, you know, each of the guests, each of the virtual machines can install whatever operating system you want. There are some, some limitations, but I mean, it's, it's almost like having your own machine. So, uh, mine has Debian, but I've always, you know, just for fun, I've, I've been trying to find a VPS provider that, that has, uh, one of the BSDs and, uh, it's been very difficult to find. And I think it's because. Uh, it's it's been difficult so far to get the BSDs running in any of those virtual machines like Zen or Virtuoso or OpenVZ or one of those technologies that that so many of the Linux providers use. But I came across one VPS host and it's called RootBSD.net. So I'll put a link to them in the show notes. Uh, don't know much about them. They're actually a local company here in in Raleigh, but I um, you know uh, haven't. Uh, you know, haven't used their service or anything like that. So I can't speak to them, but it looks very interesting. So I just thought I'd mention it. If anybody decides to, to check it out, please let me know. I may touch base with them and, you know, see if, see if I can't check out their services. So that's pretty cool stuff. All right. Enough of my uh, chit chat. Let's get right to Inkscape.
1: I'm Richard Queren. Hopefully I'm going to be able to give you a halfway decent uh overview of Inkscape, a vector graphics uh editing application uh, that happens to be cross-platform. Uh, but first I'd like to thank Chess Griffin for giving me the opportunity to uh to actually put something together on this. Um I enjoy the Linux Reality podcast one of my favorites, so I'm glad I can just help uh contribute something to it anyways a couple disclaimers I'm, uh, I'm a structural engineer not a graphic designer or a programmer just uh, a Linux user like most of you are who enjoys creating graphics and just figuring things out so this is only a, a very broad overview of Inkscape for the newbie type of, of user so heaven forbid I miss something which I, uh, I likely will um, hopefully that won't be a problem so, what is Inkscape? Well, it's an open-source vector graphics editor. It's licensed under the GPL, and it uses, uh, I believe, the project uses C, uh, some C++ and Python as well. It's got um, similar capabilities to things like Corel Adobe Illustrator, uh, another program you might have heard of called Zera X, and it uses. Um, something called the SVG format or Scalable Vector Graphics format um, for its files. So uh, a couple background things. Where did it come from? Well, it's a code fork of the Vector Graphics Editing Project called Saudi Potty, which started in 1999. I've never used that program, but that's where Inkscape came from. I think there was, uh, from what I read, four developers... Uh, on that project, who decided to fork the code for various reasons and started Thingscape. Uh, the f- current stable version right now is point four five point one, and I think point four six is uh, just around the corner. It's coming out soon. Uh, it's got a bunch of new features as well. So uh, now that stuff's out of the way, what's it useful for? Well, you can do a lot of um, different graphic tasks with. Uh, Inkscape. You can do things like website graphics, logos, letterheads, uh, business cards. You can even do some flowchart diagrams, some basic photo manipulation and enhancement, uh, although that's not its strong suit probably. I don't know, a really wide variety of things. A lot of artistic things as well. Um, Web comics, icon design, Desktop wallpapers, for instance, another great thing you can do with Inkscape. So it's got a a large amount of things you can do with it. I think a lot of times it's used just as a tool to create graphic objects that you use some other place. So if you need to develop some icons, um, you can use those in different, you know, in the GIMP or something else to to add to another project. So a lot of times you use it to build up uh, graphic objects that you might use somewhere else. So why is it different from something like the GIMP? Well, it's kind of the difference between bitmap editing and vector editing. So first of all, bitmap editors, what are they? Well, uh, that's the typical type of image editor you think of, like Photoshop, the GIMP, PaintShop Pro, or other editors like that. Um, Bitmap editors are based on a grid of pixels or a matrix of pixels. So each pixel has its own color, and the editor's move or transform those pixels or add or delete them um, to create an image. Vector editing is a little different. So instead of uh, a grid of pixels, or a a pixel map as they call it, you would do it mathematically. You'd represent that image or that information mathematically. So instead of mapping out a line from A to B in just an array of pixels, we could represent that line with an equation from one point to another. Why would we use vector image instead of, you know, something like the GIMP or Photoshop? Um, Well, there's a couple of reasons. One of the big reasons is you can do full-quality scaling. So you can draw an object of a certain size and then scale that object up without losing any detail or scale it down. When you do that in a bitmap editor, you're kind of making all kinds of approximations. If you ever tried to create a a small object in the GIMP, and then try to scale that way up to a, a large screen size. You'd see there's lots of pixelation, and lots of artifacts that get created. So it's nice to be able to create an object and then be able to export that object at a variety of sizes. Also, accuracy is, uh, is a little bit easier in geometry of objects. So since we define the points mathematically, we can really control how big objects are um, angles and, and uh, make sure things join up properly with a vector image editor. Also another big advantage is uh, editing. So when you change something, um, basically you'll see when you create something in Inkscape you draw a shape or a, a line it becomes its own, you know, it becomes a standalone object basically. you Your you know, final project might involve you know, 30, 40, 50, 100, you know 500 different objects, but you can always go back in a vector image editor like Inkscape and modify uh, objects that you created, you know, at the beginning, for instance, without, you know, damaging other objects necessarily. So it's easier to make those changes because the objects are always maintained um, mathematically, so to speak. So if you try to do that in a bitmap editor, you kind of sometimes you permanently alter your image or you, you can't go back five steps to see what you had done to create a certain image. So uh, it's very, very useful. Okay, What are some of the pros and cons? Well, the pros of vector-based editing might be scalability, accuracy, versatility of editing, like we say. The cons, well, it doesn't suit itself so well to photorealistic image ma- manipulation. So it's not really suited that well to, to manipulating photos, although I've done some things in Inkscape that I think uh, um, serve the purpose fairly well when it comes to photo editing. But uh, if you're trying to, to do strict photo editing, uh, it's usually something like a GIMP is a better choice. Sometimes achieving certain effects is a little bit easier in a bitmap editor, especially for photo work. Uh, Inkscape's getting a lot better, um, now they've got blurs, and uh, I think soon they're going to have um, uh, gradient uh, blurs and things like that, so, or motion blurs, I should say. So some of those effects are a little bit easier uh, and more intuitive in a bitmap editor. Also, the concept of bitmap editing is a lot simpler uh, to understand for a lot of people. But you know, once you use Inkscape for a while, it becomes um, kind of second nature, and you wonder why more people don't use uh, vector image editing applications uh, than than actually do so, and also the bitmap editing has been around for a long time. So there's lots of um, you know lots of help uh, places to go for help and and a lot of established work uh, done in that type of editor. So it's it's fairly easy to get help and, and learn new things that way. Now I'm going to go through kind of like uh, a very very um, Sky-high view of Inkscape, uh, starting with you know fairly basic stuff, and then going on into um, more advanced stuff. Now you might hear you might hear the odd click-click of a mouse here. Um, I'm used to doing, or more used to doing screencasts, so I'm kind of familiar with having uh, Inkscape in front of me when I'm I'm talking about it uh, or describing something. So I'm going to probably do that here at certain points. So if you hear a click-click of a mouse. Uh, Sorry if it uh, if it annoys you, but um, it's a little bit easier for me. Um, like I said at the beginning, I don't have any um, formal training as a graphic designer or anything else. Uh, I design buildings, um, which actually sometimes is is uh, easier than than doing certain things uh, in Inkscape, believe it or not. So uh, bear with me. All right, so basic. Base, some basic things uh, about Inkscape. There are several uh, basic parts to the interface. It's not, uh, it's not as scary as the GIMP when you open it up. It's one um, basic window. Uh, it's got a standard, uh, you know, what you'll see in front of you is a drawing area or it sh- looks like a sheet of paper. Um, that's where, of course, you draw all your objects. It's got the standard menu bar, you know, file, edit view, layer, things like that. It's got a commands bar just below that that's got um, kind of toolbar buttons for the the main things like opening a file, saving a file, printing, uh, importing and exporting bitmaps, uh, zooming, grouping and ungrouping objects, things like that. Um, And you can launch some of the main dialogues from that command bar. Just below that there is a uh, what they call, I believe, the tools control bar. And that's kind of um, variable depending on what kind of tool you're presently using. Uh, that bar will change. So if you're using the selection tool, you'll have a certain set of controls up there. Uh, If you're using a rectangle tool, they'll have a different set of controls, so on and so forth. You'll have on the left-hand side the toolbox, and that's where your main controls are. And believe me, when you first start Inkscape, you'll look at that and say, you know, there's not a lot of tools there, it looks like. There's, you know, square, circle, star, spiral a couple of line drawing tools, and, uh, you know, a text tool. But you'd be amazed at uh, at what you can do with those tools uh, once you figure out how to use them. Uh, at the bottom, there's a status bar. There may also be a color palette as well, depending on how your preferences are set. Um, the status bar basically is, is uh, shows you um, what you're currently doing or gives you some kind of clue as to what is selected or... Uh, what you're modifying what you have um, what tool you have uh, open it also gives you um, uh, some control over layers and visibility and the opacity of different objects which we'll discuss a little bit later So that's the main interface it's not too complex um, you won't use most of it uh, at first uh, I know I still don't use a lot of it but um, that's the main uh, the main things now the toolbox, uh, I was describing. That holds a lot of, of the main tools, so you'll have things like a selection tool to select objects, a node editing tool, which is a little more advanced, um, a zooming tool, then we get the different shapes, rectangles, uh, circles and ellipses, stars, or polygons, spirals. Um, there's a freehand tool, a bezier curve tool, a text tool, a connectors tool, and a gradients uh, tool as well, and a uh, an eyedropper type of tool. So, just to give you an idea what some of these do, um, one of the main things, uh, the, one of the most basic things is, uh, if you create a shape, you just, you know, one of the first things you'll probably do when you open it up is, is click on that rectangle tool, and once you do, you just hold and drag with your left mouse button and create a rectangle once that's created you're presented with a couple different handles and if you grab you know if you click and grab the handles you can see you can resize it uh, there's a circular type of uh... grip i think that's the proper term of uh... these little icons you'll see on the corner of your objects so a grip a circular grip uh, on a rectangle for instance if you click and drag it you'll see that it it rounds the corners of the rectangle very very quickly you can make um... You know, rounded corners for instance um, and the other objects are like that when you when you first create them, uh, they'll give you these certain grips you can modify the object with. Um, if you go to the selection tool, what I always do is hit F1, but um, you can also hit you know the, the uh, selection tool on the top left of the uh, toolbox. And this is one of the main things that you have to grasp at Inkscape when you're creating objects is, first of all, you create the object. Uh, and then once you select it, you're given all these arrow grips around your object, and you, uh, as you move the mouse around, they'll highlight, tell you which one is selected, and then if you click and drag any of those arrows, you quickly see what they do. You know, basically resize uh, the box, for instance, if we're doing that. Um, if you create a circle, um, and then hit F1 to, to select it, uh, again, you can resize the object, uh, you can stretch it vertically and horizontally. Also note that If you hold control when you do those uh, dragging things, you get a slightly different function. You can resize it without losing uh, the proportion of the object. So if you have a a square uh, with both sides equal, you hold control and hit that corner icon and stretch it, you'll see that it doesn't change proportion. It just scales up uh, nicely and remains a square. Uh, The same thing with a circle, for instance. One thing that people don't realize uh, right away is that uh, once that object's selected, if you click it, uh, single-click it again, uh, those grips change, and now you get uh, kind of curved uh, little I- arrow icons on the corners, and uh, vertical and horizontal arrow icons on the side. Just try those out again, and you'll see that you can ske- now skew the object left or right, horizontally or vertically. Um, if you grab the corner curvy arrow there at the top right, or you know any of the corners. Um, you can now rotate the object just by clicking and drag. It's very simple. And again, by holding the control key, you get some some control, uh, funnily enough. Um, So if you're trying to rotate the object and you hold the control key, it rotates, I think, in um, 15-degree increments. Uh, I could be wrong on that, and you may actually be able to customize that. Same when you skew. It controls how much it skews in kind of discrete steps. Uh, another thing you can do is uh, you'll see when you do that second uh, single click, you'll get a little crosshair in the middle of your object. That really is the origin point of your rotation. So if you grab that crosshair and move it, you can now try and rotate the object with one of the corners, and you'll see it rotates about that point. It's almost like putting a thumbtack in the object uh, before you start to rotate it. So it's very useful sometimes if you're trying to rotate uh a series of objects or something around a certain point um, makes it that much easier. Also, uh, once you have the object selected, once if you double click it you get back to that object creation mode. So if you have the selection tool, say you have a circle and a rectangle on your on your uh, drawing area, if you double click the circle, you go into circle creation mode. If you double click the rectangle, you go into rectangle, the rectangle tool again. So. It takes a little, a little getting used to it first. It's different than a lot of editing systems that I'm familiar with, but I'm more familiar with AutoCAD, for instance, in doing drafting work, uh, and I find Inkscape a lot more intuitive than that. And I've used that program for about 10 years. I've used Inkscape for, you know, a year or two off and on uh, just for fun, and I find it a lot easier to use for some, some things. Um, and you'll find that after, your, after a little while, the tools actually are very intuitive, and um, and you'll find it's much quicker to do th- certain things in Inkscape than it whatever it would be in the GIMP or uh, Photoshop or even AutoCAD. So um, that covers the selection tool really. The node editing tool I'm not really going to cover because um, uh, we'll discuss it a little bit later, but it's uh, it's more of an advanced tool and. And when we start talking about paths and things like that, um, it can be very, very useful um, for really fine-tuning your shapes and things like that. Uh, but for basic, uh, you know, basic tasks in Inkscape and just learning to use it, uh, the node editing tool is, is maybe not so useful right away. Um, the Bezier tool, I find. Well, anyways, we've got you know squares, uh, circles, and ellipses and arcs uh... the star tool and polygon tool really uh, very similar to the the rectangle and circle once you try creating those objects you'll see that the selection tool works very much the same in each uh... each type of shape uh... you can rotate the stars or change their geometry um... also i should mention that once you have an object selected you can change the width and height of it uh, very accurately up at the uh... tools control uh, bar, which is just above the drawing area, you can actually enter in a width uh, numerically. Uh, You can change the units that you use, millimeters, centimeters, pixels, uh, point sizes, inches. For instance, if you're trying to draw something very accurately, uh, you can do it. So you can modify the width, the height, uh, even modify the position of the object uh, within the document. So the whole document has a coordinate system. Usually you're set up to see uh, a ruler along the top and a ruler along the side. Um, and that'll give you an idea of what the units are and you can actually create very accurate diagrams and objects uh, in Inkscape. Now, after uh, after the selection tool, node editing, and, and then there's the Bezier tool. The Bezier tool is something that I find very useful, not maybe to create original objects, but to kind of slice and dice objects and... Uh, and, and manipulate objects a little bit. It's it's a kind of hard tool to learn. I still kind of fiddle with it quite a bit. Uh, if you select the Bezier tool and then click and drag somewhere, you'll see that it creates a line. When you let go of the mouse button, you have an opportunity to curve it. Now, if you just, um, if you just press and click without ever holding the mouse button down, you'll get just a series of straight lines um, and create a path, for instance. Um, but if you... Uh, click and hold it, you can actually bend that curve around or if you keep clicking and dragging uh, from from point to point, you can create a pretty detailed path. I'm not great at it. Uh, I tend to create something close to what I want and then go back and, and uh, fix it with the node editing tools a little bit later. So, um, so that's the Bezier tool. Um, the, now after that, there's a, a calligraphy tool um, that you can use as well to create a kind of calligraphy effect. I, to be honest, haven't used it very much, um, but I have seen it used in different tutorials, and it, it I think it can be quite useful for certain effects. Then there's the text tool, which, to no one's big surprise, creates text. The way the text tool works is usually click and drag a box. Uh, you'll see a little cursor flashing. You type in... Um, you know, the text that you want. Um, I usually hit F1 to select that text, but you can also hit the selection tool. And now that text object can be, again, uh, scaled or rotated or skewed or modified in some other way. Um, The great thing about, you know, this type of vector-based editing is later on you can always go back, uh, if that is still a text object, and select it, drag it around. Um, If you double-click it, you'll actually be able to edit the text, you know, back up and insert letters and characters or things like that. Also, um, you can also change the font and other things in in the text tool um, as well. So uh, those are the main tools uh, that you'll use at first. Um, If we go back to, uh, you know, say a rectangle or a circle, one of the main things you'll want to do first is... um, well, I should say, you know, one of the problems is that if if your color is set to white, for for instance, you will create an object and not see anything. And I've seen messages like that on the um, the mailing list from a newbie that's using um, Inkscape, and he's created an object, he thinks he has, and he can't see anything. That may be because the the foreground color of the object or the fill color is uh, is matching his background. In that case, you wouldn't see anything. So. One of the things to do is um, when you create an object is um, bring up the fill and stroke dialog box. So every object has um, a fill and a stroke. So in the case of a rectangle, um, obviously the fill would be the color that infills that box. Um, The stroke would be the color of the outline of that box, if it has an outline. Um, What you do is select an object and then bring up um, the fill and stroke dialog box. You can hit shift control aft or, or Shift-Control-F, or there is a button on the uh, on the control bar, or command bar at the top for the fill and stroke dialog. Once that comes up, you'll see there's three tabs. There's a fill tab. Um, it looks pretty complex at first uh, when you're trying to figure it out. Um, it's best to really just play around with it and watch your object, because when you change things uh, in that dialog box, um, and it pops up like a floating a floating dialog box. Um, When you change settings in that box, you'll see your object, uh, the changes reflected immediately in your object. So uh, the first tab is fill and I usually keep it on the color wheel, but other people, you know, there's four different ways of of picking uh, the color that you want to use for the fill. I I tend to use the color wheel because it's quickest and I'm not usually after uh, anything too accurate. So if you can see, if you change the color, immediately the color in that object changes. There's also a way to change the stroke. Change the, if you go to the Stroke tab, you again can set it to no stroke or no paint, um, a flat color. Um, and in either case, a fill or the stroke, you can change it to a gradient, a linear gradient, um, or even a radial gradient. There's a third tab in the Fill and Stroke dialog box called the Stroke Style. And, and this is also very useful. You can um, change the thickness of that stroke very accurately, again, in different units. So you can do it in pixels, which I normally work in, um, or millimeters, centimeters, things like that. So you can then create you know, a rectangle with a fat border or a thin border. Um, if you go to the Stroke Paint tab and hit the X, you'll see that there's no paint, and that that stroke or that border just disappears. Um, in the Stroke Style pane as well, you can also change how the corners are rendered. Do you want them to be rounded, uh, beveled, or mitered? You can change how the end of uh, different lines are rendered. You can be re-squared off, rounded. Um, you can change the line type. So it could be a solid line, a dotted line. There's a bunch of different um, dash and dash dot type of lines that you can use. Uh, you can also scale uh, the dashes and things like that, the patterns. You can also have markers um, on the ends of your lines. I was trying forever to figure out how to do um, <laughs> a simple arrow, uh, arrow line in Inkscape a while back and I, I never saw an arrow tool and I, I kind of wondered how to do it. Um, then I figured out that if I drew a stroke or a line then I could change uh, the start or the mid marker or the end marker of that line uh, to probably one of any, you know, there's got to be like 30, probably 20 or 30 different uh, symbols that you can put on the beginning, middle, or end of your line uh, to create the area you want. So that worked great as well. Uh, Another very important part of the fill and stroke dialog box is the blur and um, opacity of your object. Now it gets a little bit confusing, and it's hard to explain just simply in, a, in an audio podcast. But the blur, obviously, you set a percentage of blur, and it blurs that object. Um, and you'll see it again. You'll see it right away, blur on your screen. So you can tell how much, uh, you know, there's a slider and also a numeric value you can enter. Um, and use that just to create a blur effect if you need it. Very useful for things like uh, putting a shadow under an object so if you create a kind of sphere looking object um, you can create another you know, rectangle or ellipse underneath it in black say and increase the blur of that uh, black ellipse and it starts to look kind of like a shadow uh, the opacity is basically the transparency of the object so uh, that's one great thing about Inkscape is uh, when objects overlap you can do transparent things, uh, transparent effects uh, have um, certain objects overlay other objects and uh, you can see through them or not you can you can vary it as much as you want and you can get some really really nice effects using um, different opacities in and you know that applies to the whole object you can also i forgot to mention when you're setting the um, fill or stroke color in that color wheel you can also vary. The transparency or opacity of that fill or stroke, so you could actually have an object with a with a solid outline, but a transparent fill, for instance. As well, you can do gradients and and adjust the opacity of the gradients as well. So, it's a very very powerful um, way to edit, and most of it just comes down to to practice, to trying things out, and that's that's basically how I learned to use Inkscape is just by um, as sad as it sounds by trial and error, uh, but to me it's fun. I like graphics and, and uh, graphic design, so trying to create something in Inkscape and figuring it out to me is uh, is uh, really a lot of the fun part uh, to me. So that covers um, really, really basically the fill and stroke dialogue box. Um You'll see that that's basically what you're going to do with your objects at first. You just create them, get the geometry right, uh, and then fiddle around with the fill and the stroke and opacity and blur and things like that to get the look that you want. And um, a lot of times what you'll create is junk, uh, uh, like I do most of the time. Um, but it, it helps you figure things out. And you know, definitely don't be afraid to just experiment. Um, the great thing about it, it's not like the GIMP where, uh, or Photoshop or any of those other ones where... You would try something and uh, can't really go back or can't easily go back and try something else um, without you know uh, doing a lot of a lot of intermediate steps uh, in this case, you can uh, fiddle with an object as long as you want, uh, change to it or you know create some other object and then go back and fiddle with the first one um, uh, to your heart's content so it's quite good for that uh, that type of fiddling around and 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 that's how you learn. Uh, uh, a lot of the capabilities of, of Inkscape is just by trying things out um, and, and trying to figure them uh, figure them out to, uh, to do what you want them to do. So, uh, some other basic things we want to be able to do is um, uh, the, is import and export. For instance, uh, we can actually import uh, a variety of different files into Inkscape. Um, it can import. Uh, various different bitmap formats. So you can actually import a JPEG file or a PNG file or, or a variety of other bitmap files um, right into Inkscape. So you can, for instance, uh, what I found useful was sketching something by hand. If I'm cr- trying to create a logo, I would sketch something by hand, um, throw it in my scanner, and uh, you know, scan it into a bitmap or a, a PNG file. And I would import that into... Inkscape. And then I would use the tools in Inkscape to maybe trace it or um, manually trace it or automatically uh, trace it into some form uh, and turn it into a vector object that I can then use um, and modify that way. You can also import, I believe, Adobe Illustrator files, um, Windows Meta files, the WMF files, um, which are similar. They're kind of a vector-based file. Um, You can import text files for instance if you want to lay out some text a paragraph of text you can actually create that as a text file and bring it in Um, and there's other other formats as well i won't go into them all here but a variety of different things you can import into uh, into inkscape now exporting um, in inkscape you can export a variety of different files as well you can export your projects to pdf although i'm not hundred percent sure of how well that works at the moment. I know they're working on uh, improving that. You can export to Post, uh, sorry, Postscript format. You can export to DXF, uh, which is a CAD type of universal CAD type of format. So, if you export something to DXF, usually you'd be able to import that into something like AutoCAD um, if you wanted to edit it uh, there as well. I've never tried that. I'm not sure. You know, I use AutoCAD every day, but. I've never tried a DXF import from, from Inkscape, so, um, but that may work fine. Um, you can export to, I believe, Adobe Illustrator format. Again, I'm not sure how that works, and, and there's also several other export formats uh, that I'm not familiar with either. You can also export bitmap images, which is very, very useful. So once you create this uh, masterwork of art, um, then what do you do with it? Well, I think Firefox, uh, supports SVG fairly well. I don't think Internet Explorer does. Uh, I'm not sure about the other browsers, but, um, Opera probably does. So it's quite useful a lot of times is once you're done, um, creating something, you can export that to a bitmap file. Right now, I think Inkscape, Inkscape only exports to PNG, uh, which is perfectly fine. I think it's a great format. Um, and the big, you know, the the power of being able to export that from a vector image editing application is that you can set the resolution of that export. So, say I create uh, some great logo and I want to export it for a bunch of different uses. I might want to export it for a web page, and that you know bitmap file should only be say you know sixty by sixty pixels. Well, I can export that no problem. Uh, it But what if I want to use that same logo um, in a print application, and I I need the resolution to be, you know, twelve hundred by twelve hundred pixels? But I can do that in Inkscape uh, just by changing the resolution when I export. And that's that's the whole power of vector editing to me, is that now I can create um, that big, huge bitmap file for high resolution uses, or or a very small bitmap file for you know posting on a web page, for instance. Um and I don't lose accuracy in either case, so I'm going to have the same you know base object and I can export it to a bunch of different resolutions very useful um, now, as far as the png format, you can use that on most web pages there's not a problem and most browsers I think support it fairly well now um, the png does have transparency, so there can be some funny effects if you're not if you're not used to to using png files on a web page for instance so a lot of times what i'll do is um, export to png and then i'll use uh, something like image magic or the gimp to convert that png file to a jpeg for instance Uh, there's probably lots of other tools you can use any of the main bitmap editors will import a png and export a jpeg if you want or a bmp file So. You know, it's usually not a problem. The PNG is, I think, the only bitmap uh, format that Inkscape will export. Um, But like I say, that doesn't really make much of a difference when you can convert it uh, to a bunch of different formats later. So that covers, you know, most of the basic, uh, very basic operations. The main thing is to to really try, and at the end of this, I'm going to also go over a bunch of um, sources for help. So... um, there's lots of places to go for, for really good help.
0: Um, okay. Well, I'm going to stop Richard's talk right there. He suggested that 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 would be a good place to stop if I make this a two parter. And I think I am going to make it a two parter because it was another uh, very long episode. So the second half will be, uh, next week's episode. So I think that'll work out very well. Uh, but for now, let's check out a listener tip and then we've got some feedback.
2: Hello, this is Verbal. Well, at least Verbal is the name I go by in the forums. And here are my listener tips. There are two commands that you can use to get lots of information about the hardware installed in your computer. The first command is called LSPCI. The second command is called LSHW. LSPCI gives you information about different controllers installed inside your computer, such as your VGA controller, communication controller, firewire controller, and Ethernet controller. The LSHW command gives you information such as the manufacturer of your motherboard, the manufacturer of your CPU chip, the CPU chip type and speed, how much RAM you have in your computer, how many RAM slots you have in your computer, which of those slots are filled, which of those slots are empty, what type of video card you have, what type of network card you have, how fast your network card can operate, and also it'll give you information about your hard drive such as the capacity whether or not it's IDE, whether or not it's SCSI, and it also gives you information about your CD-ROM and DVD-ROM drives. One thing I've noticed is that lspci is almost always on any distribution of Linux I've used. LSHW sometimes isn't. But if you need to find out what's inside your computer, try those. Thanks for listening.
0: All right. Well, one thing I wanted to say is I got a chance to meet Verbal at the Ohio Linux Fest, and it was uh, very nice to meet him. So, thank you, Verbal, for recording that listener tip and sending it in. Let's check out some listener feedback. Okay. Well, the uh, feedback that I've got. Let's see. I've got. I was going to pick up some of these emails. Uh, that I, I started to get through last week. First one is from Rico. Rico says, hello, Chess. First off, I'd like to thank you for your dedication and efforts to bring this great podcast to us every week. I have two questions if I might ask them. And the first question is actually about, and I'm not going to read it all because I don't have the answer. It's about running Compiz uh, Fusion on OpenSUSE 10.3. And unfortunately, uh, Rico, I do not know. Um, I haven't used OpenSUSE 10.3 yet. Uh, I would just recommend checking out their forms and the wiki I think you actually posted to a wiki entry about Compiz uh, fusion on uh, on OpenSUSE. I think that was for ten point two but uh, I would just you know I would just keep checking in those forms and and that uh, and that uh, wiki for updated information. And if anybody here that's listening has been using 10.3 and has got compass fusion working, maybe post something in the Linux reality forums and the you know comments to this particular episode and let Rico know Rico's second question though, is one I think I can answer. He says, uh, my second question is about an MP3 portable device that I can use with Linux that has an extremely good podcast support, i.e., PC client that downloads the podcasts automatically, keeps track of them, and deletes them once they are listened to, just like an iPod, but without being from the evil from the Apple evil empire. I have an iPod and I hate the stupid thing. Thank you again for all the help and the time you put into these podcasts for us from Rico. Well, Rico, let's see, lots, lots of comments here. First of all, the nice thing about other players that is players other than uh, the iPod is that at least for at least as far as Linux is concerned, there's not a direct tie between a particular player and a a particular piece of software. In other words, there's lots of different audio applications such as Amarok, uh, Rhythmbox, I think Banshee. uh, There's several others that will that these are audio players. These are sort of jukebox players, you know, they'll manage your music, but they also have podcast support. I think XAL, which is a GTK2 version of Amarok does. And there's also G Potter, which is a GTK podcast only client. Uh, so the, there's lots of different GUI uh, music clients or audio clients that will also download podcasts for you at whatever interval you set and all this kind of stuff. And then as far as syncing goes, again, it depends on the software and the particular player iPod, you know, they have decent support in Linux because so many people have iPods that there's so many Linux developers and people that have tried to get them to work in Linux. I personally have a Quan iAudio 5, which I really like. It's a Flash-based uh, MP3 player that also plays Augs. Any of the Kwan, um that's C-O-W-O-N, any of those devices, I should I shouldn't say any, but I think almost any of their devices will work in Linux because they do... Uh, focus on Linux and they do try to provide good Linux support. The iRivers, um, you know, maybe to a slightly lesser degree, but they still have very good Linux support. I have an iAudio 790, which is an older iRiver. You can get them really cheap on eBay. And again, it's just a flash based player. And the thing that's important about all of these players is that for me, at least they mount as a USB mass storage device. So this gets to your question, they just mount as if you stuck in a USB stick, you know, a flash drive or USB removable hard drive, you know, or a a, a hard drive in a USB enclosure. It just shows up as a drive. And then with your podcast player, your audio player, you can, you know, once it's mounted, you can then have it set to either automatically synchronize onto that player or you can just drag and drop. And to me being able to mount a USB mass storage device is a deal breaker. I will never buy another player that does not mount that way uh, because I like to use it that way. I just like to, because, you know, I don't use too many of those GUI applications. I just like to have my little bash Potter script run on my server at night. And then I drag those files over onto my Kawan every morning, it's a, you know, piece of cake. So uh, hopefully that helps. I guess the, really the point is, is that you don't have to have a player with a, uh, I mean, you know, you don't have to have a physical player with a specific piece of software you can mix and match in Linux. That's what's nice about it. Okay, here's one from Christopher. Christopher says, says hey, Chess, I just thought I'd recommend that you try out Doom 3 and Quake 4 for Linux. Use copies are really cheap to come by from Half.com, and it looks astonishingly good. I'm playing through Quake 4 right now, and it's pretty darn cool. It's amazing to think that what a three-year-old games look like now, from Christopher. That's great, Christopher. I don't have either of those games, but I actually play even older games. I mean, I still like playing Quake 3 <laughs> and Unreal Tournament. Um, and those are games, you know, those are seven-year-old games or eight-year-old games. And I still think they look good, and they're still super fun to play. I mean, you know, for me, games is not all about the graphics. I mean, of course, that's important, but it's about the playability, how good the story is, which is why I like the Quake series um, or, or, you know, I mean, I I was a big fan of Half-Life just because I thought that story was so, so cool. Uh, Even if the graphics weren't, you know, the super top notch, it was just the story was so engaging. I like Return to Castle Wolfenstein as well. Okay, here's one from Russell. Russell says, hey, Chess, right now I'm working on my PC running Windows, and I go to Update Java as it says there's a new version installed or available, and I get this in the notification box. Uh, And this is what the notification box says. To get a free copy of OpenOffice, the global standard and free Microsoft Office compatible productivity software, just click the More Information link. And he says, wow, crazy, huh? Is there any relation between Sun and the OpenOffice team, or do they just support open source in general? I thought you'd find this interesting from Russell. Well, actually, Russell, there is a reason for that, is that Sun is the one that owns really the code and the copyright to star office. And that's what they open sourced to create open office. Um, so there's a yes. So open office, um, is, is directly related to sun. In fact, a lot of sun engineers still contribute to both star office and, and open office. Actually, I think the way it works is there was a company that made star office unrelated to sun. And I don't remember their name, but they made a product called star office and sun bought this company maybe around the year 2000 or so uh, to create star office. And then shortly thereafter, they released it as open source as open office, but sun still, still maintains star office. So, uh, there's a very tight relationship there. Uh, so I think that's why you got that uh, pop-up box. Um, okay. Here's one from Doug. Doug says, I apologize if you may have already addressed this issue before, I have yet to find any sincere answers other than being directed to your website which I thank you for. My question dilemma is this. My dad left me his desktop, which has SUSE 10.2 on it. I want to keep and get to know the system better. Mayhaps follow in my dad's footsteps. In the meantime, I'm trying to find out, figure out how to make this Linux-based machine a dual boot machine, adding Windows as a boot option. I realize this is the exact opposite of what most of the techno world is doing. However, I can't believe I'm the first person wanting and willing to do this. Any or all help guidance you can provide is greatly appreciated. Thank you for your time and consideration from Doug. Well, Doug, no, I don't think that's unusual at all. Um, What you are looking for is a way to partition the drive, uh, resize and partition to create some free space to install Windows. And then you also have to consider what kind of bootloader or boot manager you're going to use. The bootloader or the boot manager is the usually text-based menu that appears when you first turn on your computer and lets you choose between windows and linux you know most of the time people are going to have windows on there already they'll resize the hard drive to create some space install linux and the linux bootloader will also be installed uh, at that same time and it will present a menu for both you're kind of doing it on the reverse so you probably have linux and it probably already has a bootloader and which is what you see probably a, you know, a Sosa looking, you know, Sousa is the comp is the distro, some kind of textual or maybe slightly graphics based menu that appears when you first boot up and you want to add windows. So to resize your hard drive and repartition, I recommend uh, using the G parted live CD, just Google for that. That's G parted uh, that's G P A R T E D live CD. It's a live, 30 or 40 megabytes CD ISO image, download that, burn it onto a blank CD, boot it up. And it gives you, it's basically like partition magic, except it's free. It's open source. Uh, it gives you a partition um, editor, lets you partition your drives and resize and all that kind of stuff. And what you want to do is resize and uh, the Linux partition, creates some free space to install windows on uh, and then, you know, shut it down, reboot into Windows, and install Windows. Now, Windows will probably, I would imagine, overwrite the boot manager that SUSE installed and install the Windows boot manager. Now, I don't, I haven't been using Windows, so I don't know how this will work. And it could be that Windows just automatically overwrites the master boot record entirely and just installs itself, um, which is fine because you can undo that. So let Windows do its thing. And then what I would do is I would... Put your SUSE disk back in. Hopefully, you've got that. And I think I'm pretty sure when you first boot it up, there's a way to restore the uh, SUSE or something like that where you can basically reinstall the boot manager. You can also, if you want, after you install Windows, get something called GAG, G-A-G. And uh, it's a free open source third party boot manager which I've used in the past and I really like it. Um, and it's the nice thing is you can use it after the fact. So you've got SuSE on there, you know, resize your partitions, install Windows on a free space. On free space, I'm sure Windows will overwrite the master boot record. and Don't worry about it; your SuSE is still there. It's just that you're not being given a choice to boot into it. You know, Microsoft doesn't want to give you that choice. Uh, but then install this GAG bootloader. And, uh, you'll, when you install that, it will see both and it will give you an option to, to, you know, add both. So that should work and feel free to post in Linux reality forums. If you have any problems, here's one from Ken. Ken says, Ken, I've been listening to your podcast and I've learned a great deal. I enjoy your podcast. Um, on one of your podcasts, you talked about a site where you could download books for your iPod. I thought it was potty books, but I am not finding it. Can you point me in the right direction? Thanks, Ken. Yeah. Ken, it's patio books. That's, um, P O D I O B O O K S.com. All one word patio com. And I've been listening to some new patio books from that website, uh, that I'll talk about shortly. And I've also been, uh, reading one of the books, um, from James, um, Scossi. He's the, uh, one I mentioned recently. He's a writer also writes some horror and, uh, he sent me a couple of his books, and I'm reading one of those as well. So um, that's, anyway, the Patio Books website is, yes, patiobooks.com. Okay, last email. This one's from Suri. Suri says, hey there, I just want to say thank you so much for making such a great podcast for Linux fans around the world. I bought a new iPod just so I can listen to Linux reality on the subway. (laughs) I really like the topics you have chosen for the episodes. I think they are very interesting and also practical topics for Linux users. That's very cool. Thank you, Suri. I got another email from someone. I didn't pull it in here. I'll try to pull that out next week. It said similar sort of thing. They said after reading the reviews on iTunes, they bought an iPod and just so they could listen to Linux reality. So that's awesome. Yeah, very cool stuff. All right. I think that's going to do it for this week. Time to wrap it up. Okay, well, again, that's going to do it for me for this week. Uh, talking about Inkscape, I'd like to thank Richard for uh, recording that great guest segment. That was part one. He sent me all the whole thing, but I decided to cut it up. And uh, we're going to do part one this week and part two next week. Uh, so I hope you're enjoying that. I may have another guest episode coming up as well. And, you know, if you are out there and if you are thinking about doing a guest episode, if you got an idea on something, please let me know uh, and send me, you know, maybe even a a little small sample recording just a minute or so, just so we can kind of hear the the level and all of that, Uh, because it is a little tricky. And because I have to import it into Audacity and then re-export it, you know. I do want to make sure that the quality is really good, uh, you know, as best we can. I mean, none of us are audio engineers, so um, far be it for me to say that someone's audio is a problem because I don't think I do a very good job. I try, but uh, I do the best I can. Anyway, um, feel free to contact me, linuxreality at gmail.com. You can also check out linuxreality.com slash contact for all the listener hotlines. And voicemail numbers and uh, stuff, you know, other ways to get a hold of me. We've also got the Linux Reality Forms at linuxreality.com slash forms. A lot of people hanging out in there. Very active and lots of fun. Very, very nice people. If you're new to Linux, if you're new to the podcast, feel free to drop by, say hello. No one's going to bite you. Don't worry about it. We're, we're all friends in there. Good Good place to hang out. And we've got the IRC chat room as well. Uh, Let's see. I think that's going to do it for this week. So I'd like to thank everybody for listening and for downloading and for tuning in and sending me the feedback and the emails. Keep doing that. I really appreciate it. In the meantime, y'all take care and have a great week and a great weekend. I'll catch y'all next time. This has been Episode 82 of Linux Reality. See you later. Bye-bye.